taking your Bibles with you, please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you're using the church Bible this morning, you're looking for page 262. Congregation, let us pray. Our God and Father, we ask on the occasion now of your word being publicly read and preached for your help. Lord, be merciful to us. We are in a great need. We need your Holy Spirit to attend upon our hearing, upon our believing, upon our doing. Father, grant us that grace that belongs to the children of God. And Lord, even if there be any among us who are outside of Christ, Lord, may it please you, according to your glorious purpose, to call them today even to the Savior. We ask these wonderful things, for before you we cannot ask too much. In Jesus' name, amen. Our reading begins in 2 Samuel 11 and does continue ways. Let us hear the word of God. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a, a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come home from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah Dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. 
And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed the Bimelech, the son of Jerubath? Jerubaseth, did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you will say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him, with his children. He used to eat, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Turn to Psalm 51. If you're using the church Bible, you're going to page 474. Psalm 51, 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of God. Beloved, one of the most devastating and severe judgments King David ever declared was the judgment he declared against himself. Of course, he did not know in the moment that he himself was the man whom he had just condemned. As David listened to Nathan tell the story of a rich man who had stolen the little lamb of a poor man, a beloved lamb, a lamb that had become like a daughter, as David listened, the temperature in his anger 
His just wrath was heating up. The text says David's anger was greatly kindled against the rich man. And when David finally heard enough, he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. The king had spoken. He had spoken with the clarity and the simplicity of a judge who knows a great evil when he sees it. Nathan, of course, was hoping for something just like this to come from David's mouth. It was the goal for which Nathan had told the story. So without missing a beat, Nathan replied to David, you are the man. Nathan had led David to a place that David did not want to go, a place where David could finally judge himself rightly. Under the ruse of a story about a lamb, Nathan had cleared David's mind of self-interest. What a shrewd maneuver by the Lord's messenger. And when he did, David was able to hate another man's sin, and that other man was himself. David is the man. He had Uriah murdered. He took Bathsheba and committed adultery. David deserved to die. Well, instead of ending that day with a proud heart, David ends the day with a wounded heart, a crushed heart, a broken heart. Psalm 51, 17. He is the man who did the things he himself hates, just like Paul confesses in Romans 7. That which I do is what I hate to do. David is the vile and the wretched man he thought he had not met yet. The man who deserves David's most severe judgments and condemnations is David himself. And suddenly his spirit is broken. Suddenly his heart is crushed. And what feels to him like a worst day of his life is perhaps the best day of his life. Because, beloved, you are having a terrible day squared if you sin and your spirit is not broken. Could God love such a man as this? Could God love a man who has done the evil things David has done? Could God love him even though David has not finished discovering all the darkness that remains yet in his sinful heart? Could God love him? Yes, yes, and yes. God loves David. This David not because David is lovely, but because God is love. And God chose to set his love upon David and never take his love away from David. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Jeremiah 31.3. God chose to conquer David's reckless evil heart by his love. God's love for David is even why David is once again so displeased with himself. 
2 Samuel 11.27 told us the Lord was displeased with David, the last verse of that chapter. Now the Lord has brought David to be of the same mind as the Lord himself toward David. That's communion. That's agreement. That's true friendship. When you think of yourself the same way the holy God thinks of you. This is the work of God's love. For when a man is truly displeased with himself, only then, only then can he truly rest in God as his portion, as his all in all, as his everything. Beloved, take this as one of the chief principles of your life. Become displeased with yourself so you find not even a patch of rest with your name on it. Rest in God alone. Drive out every possible piece of reputation, every possible piece of honor that you might rest upon with your name on it, or else God will not be all and everything to you. Beloved, listen. The Christian is someone who is easily displeased with himself. The Christian is not, always, is not always as displeased with himself as he ought to be, but he is easily brought back to being displeased with himself when he hears the word being read, or when he hears a psalm being sung, or when he is rebuked by the truth, or when he bows to pray, or when he reviews his obedience, or when he meets someone of a refined godliness. When any of these happen and the Spirit of God also presses on the conscience and whispers, you are the man, you are the woman, you are the one whose ways are not right, whose mind is worldly, whose actions are foolish, whose ambitions are vain, whose spirit is haughty, whose love is cold, whose obedience is half-hearted, it is then, under the ministry and care of the Holy Spirit, who loves you, it is then that the Christian easily enters into their natural habitat again, which is to be displeased with themselves for their sins. The Christian is someone who is always finding the sin that remains in them, and their spirit is broken by it. Their heart is crushed by it. That is the natural habitat of the new man. That's not the whole habitat, but it is foundational. Now, many people want to get as far from being displeased with themselves as they can. This is why many run far away from the religious life required by Jesus Christ. They don't want to hear they are thinking the wrong way or acting the wrong way or desiring the wrong thing. They want to be pleased with themselves, and they will not put that at risk by drawing near to religion. But there's another group of people, just like those I just mentioned, another group who also want to be pleased with themselves, but this group thinks a religious life is exactly the way to achieve this. They are wrong, but these are the folks who are willing to say the right things, do the right things, and go to the right places they are willing to enter a religious life, 
Why? Because they do not want to be displeased with themselves. And they think cleaning the outside of the cup will give them reasons to be pleased with themselves. But in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 especially, David shows us the religious life was never meant, never, never ever meant to be a shield that would keep you from being displeased with yourself. On the contrary, the religious life required by Jesus Christ was always meant to expose a man's weakness, break his heart, crush his spirit, to bring him and keep him low. Because it is just such a man whom the Lord loves and whom the Lord blesses and whom the Lord draws near and whom the Lord lifts up and whom the Lord gives joy. When a man is empty of himself, God fills him with God. You will not be filled with God if you are high on yourself. God resists the proud. He actively resists those who insist on being pleased with themselves. We know they have one enemy for sure, even if all men praise them. God resists them. So look what David is saying in verse 16. David at verse 16 has gone beyond merely his personal biography. He is now in the office of a prophet, and he is declaring to all the church of God what is true religion and what it has always been. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. There it is, a foundation stone of all true religion. God does not delight in sacrifice. God desires truth in the inward parts, 51.6. Listen to it from Isaiah 1, verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Then the Lord says through Hosea 6.6, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah the prophet says to Judah, When God called you as a people out of Egypt, he did not command of you sacrifices, Jeremiah says. He commanded you to obey his voice. This was laid down always in the very foundational documents and covenants of God with his people. Now, the Jews were easily hardened against this truth. And so David serves his kin greatly in verse 16. The Jews thought God did delight in sacrifices. They thought God was obligated to delight in sacrifices because God had created the sacrificial system himself. He was the architect of it. The Jews believed as long as they sacrificed the flesh of bulls and the blood of goats, God had to bless them, that they had him over a barrel. They had turned the sacrifices into transactional religious performance, 
The sacrifices became works they performed and then boasted in to obtain God's favor. What they should have seen in each sacrifice is how they were borrowing from Christ. Borrowing from Christ what they needed in order to purchase redemption. And the Christ would one day come and pay off all that they had borrowed. All the sin debt they were postponing and all the sin debt that they were confessing through the sacrificial system, Christ would come and satisfy it with his own death. But they refused to see this. Instead, they turned the action of sacrifice into a work that left them pleased with themselves. Now, this is what some people do with the Christian faith. They get involved, so they have religious works to boast in before their own conscience. And their own conscience serves them as a judge, as God. So they desperately want to be pleased with themselves, and that's why they get involved in the Christian church. But Paul says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 1.31. In fact, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you see what Paul is saying? The religious life empties a man of himself, but fills that man with the power and presence of Christ. Every step of the religious life is meant to bring us in this direction. Only then can you believe the whole wretched truth about yourself and still be enormously, enormously happy because the Lord Jesus loves those. He is near those. He guards and keeps those whose spirit is broken and whose heart is crushed by their sins. And why does he? Because they are the only ones who see him truly, a savior for sinners. Those who are pleased with themselves, Christ to them is in a cloud. Even if there's a silhouette, they do not see him as glorious because they have themselves in the way. But Christ draws so very near, is so pleased with, so blesses with his presence and power those emptied of themselves because he is a true physician for the sick. He is a liberator for those in bondage. He is life for those dead. Now notice five words in the middle of verse 16. David says, or I would give it, or I would give it. Here David confesses the fundamental condition of his own will. He wants to give the Lord whatever the Lord wants from him. If the Lord only wants sacrifices, David will bring only sacrifices, nothing more. He is not opposed in any way to giving the Lord what the Lord wants. And it is for this very reason he must give the Lord more than sacrifices. Because the Lord wants more than bulls and goats. The Lord wants more, beloved, than a mere public profession of your faith in Christ. Certainly, he wants that. But he wants more than that. 
The Lord wants more than merely your bodily presence at a Lord's Day assembly. Certainly he wants that, but he wants more than that. What does he want? He wants your heart. And he cannot have your heart if you have your heart, if you are so high on yourself that you do not know the grief and the mourning and the lament of the broken spirit. And only he can break it. I'm coming to that point. Or I would give it. David will give the Lord what he wants. He gives the Lord the sacrifices that are not merely external. He gives the Lord the heart broken. Look at verse 17 then. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In his office as a prophet, David now shows us the true association between the external religious life and the internal religious life. Notice that he keeps the language of sacrifice here in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are. He is showing us that the sacrificial system was always, always about the weakness of man. The sacrifices were always saying to man, you do not have in your own life anything that can satisfy the Lord's wrath against your sin and so permit him to dwell favorably with you. You do not have anything. The blood of a substitute must be shed for you to be in God's presence. There's nothing in your own life to point to and say, look there, that must satisfy the Lord. That must answer for my sins. The sacrificial system was saying, no, there is no such thing. Not in the quality of your marriage, not in the quality of your parenting, not in the quality of your work, not in the quality of your prayers, not in the quality of your worship, not in being reformed, not in being in the OPC, not even in the depth of your suffering. Can you find anything that you possess yourself that can satisfy the Lord's scrutiny of your sin? You need a substitute. Before Christ, the substitute was a proper animal sacrifice in the hands of a proper priest because that animal sacrifice signified that an offering was coming in the future that would put an end to all offerings. And so not only did you need an animal sacrifice in the hands of the proper priest, but you needed it again and again. The Lord required it again and again because the again and again testified that it wasn't sufficient to clear your debt and guilt. But it testified that one substitute was coming one day who would be. Now that Christ has come, he is the substitute. He describes himself in Hebrews as the offering, as the sacrifice. He is the final offering of all those ancient sacrifices that they were pointing to and that they were anticipating. Only Christ crucified satisfies God's wrath and curse against sin. So let us understand how devastating this all is to human pride. That you and I must look away from self 
and become beggars rich in mercy to have any standing with God, this is devastating to human pride. This leaves us with a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Remember, David is not using those phrases about a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart to simply give us an autobiographical story. He is laying down as a prophet a theology for the whole church that has been laid down before. So every time you are tempted to be pleased with yourself, David is teaching, the spirit puts the sacrifice of Christ before your eyes, saying there is nothing in you to be pleased with. Look here. Look at Christ. All the good in you has come from his root. Be pleased with Christ. Then you will mourn over your sins, but you will also be merry and cheerful that Christ has become to you wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30. But if we do not have a broken spirit, it is simply because we have found something in ourselves we are pleased with, which means, beloved, you are pleased with a lie. Do you really want to go down in history as a person who is pleased with a lie? That you are pleased with yourself because your sins were not scandalous murder and scandalous adultery? Or perhaps they were. Do you really want to go down in history as being pleased with yourself on the foundation of a lie that you're not Hitler? The truth is, beloved, you are the offspring of Adam the first. You were conceived and born in sin. You were children of disobedience, children of wrath. Only when Christ came and engrafted you into his own root, his own life, did you begin to truly live in the righteousness of the eternal God. I want to give you a few thoughts about our, our servant's word, broken. He uses the word twice in verse 17. The old Geneva study note says, this is, quote, a wounding of the heart proceeding from faith, which seeks God for mercy. Now, that's a very fine definition, but we can say a little more. If you track the Hebrew word broken through the Old Testament, you learn it most often means a just defeat, not an unlawful defeat, but a just defeat by a righteous adversary. That's the most frequent use of this word. Sometimes the righteous adversary is God. Sometimes the righteous adversary is Israel. The objects broken most often are the unrighteous or idols or instruments of war or enemies of God. These things are broken by Yahweh as acts of Yahweh's deliverance and his righteousness. Well, how does that shed light on the broken spirit, on the broken heart? Well, it tells us that the spirit and heart of man is normally not broken in its natural fallen condition. It's in a state of enmity before Yahweh. In his sinful condition, man's spirit is proud and filled with self-confidence. 
and far too easily pleased with himself. Such a spirit has not yet been healed, nor delivered, nor blessed of God. Such a spirit needs to be broken, and only the Lord can do it. And when the Lord comes and does it, though he leaves a wound, he also leaves a blessing. Just as our Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, hear these few words from our Lord Jesus in Matthew 5. He's talking about the same thing David is talking about. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Matthew 5, 3 through 6. There's a blessing on them. God has visited them. He has graced them with the life of his son, and it appears in their displeasure with themselves. I don't have enough righteousness. I'm hungry for it. I don't have enough godliness. I'm hungry for it. I'm mourning my sin. I'm poor in my spirit. It's evidence that they have been visited by the living God. So the broken heart, the broken spirit, is a victory of God against the natural man. The enemy has been subdued. Now look at the last phrase in verse 17. It's the phrase, you will not despise. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is a very, very helpful expression for the church of Christ. To despise something is to regard it as poor quality because it is useless, perhaps even dangerous. The word often appears when the moral distance between two things is very, very great, like a corrupt thing or a filthy thing or a a worthless thing. So you might despise a hamburger with cheese that's been sitting on a picnic table for six hours in yesterday's sun. If I offered it to you, your face would be a charade of despise. But most of the uses of this very word in Hebrew in the Old Testament are when people are despising the wrong thing. They think they are in the higher position, so they despise the word of God. Or they despise prayer, or they despise people they should not. Esau despised his birthright. A fool despises his mother. Goliath despised David. The most common use of this Hebrew word in the scriptures is somebody despising something they should not. And all of this gets to the point why this word is in 5117. Men are likely to despise a man with a broken spirit and a broken heart. You might even despise that version of yourself and try to hide it because you think it's worthless in the world. A broken spirit is regarded by men as weakness a lack of ability, a lack of competence, a lack of confidence. People do not like to be around with people with a broken spirit. We want to be around people who are pleased with themselves, people who are upbeat and confident and sure of themselves. But God, who is the highest of all beings, 
will not despise the man or woman with a broken spirit. We might think those of a broken spirit are truly far from God. But here, the Lord is saying the very opposite is the case. The Lord does not despise those whose spirit and whose heart have been justly defeated by the righteous act of Yahweh's deliverance. Listen to what the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The high king of heaven dwells with the contrite and lowly. He does not dwell with them to take away even more of what he has already taken. Isaiah says he dwells to revive their spirit, to revive their heart, not by getting them pleased with themselves again. There's no reviving through that. That's just more judgment. If God left you simply to be a person who's pleased with yourself, it would surely be a sign that he has judged you as a reprobate. No, the Lord comes and he revives them by filling them with the consolations of his everlasting love, his unfailing love, his steadfast love, his abiding presence, his everlasting presence, his enduring presence, that he belongs to that weak and wounded sinner. The high king of heaven dwells with lowly ones, because by sovereign grace they have come to take him as he truly is. They're everything. They're all in all. They're God. Only such lowly sinners honor God in Christ, for they are the ones who by faith place nothing on the scale to gain his love. And so he will be everything to that sinner, because they take him as God. To put ourselves on the scale is to lie about who God is to the soul of the sinner. Beloved, I urge you to hear these words today. The Lord will not despise the lowly and the broken spirit. It is not that you have to go out and commit scandalous sins to somehow achieve this state of soul described in Psalm 51. You have already committed those sins. Do you know it? You already have enough sins that far outstrip the sins of David. The question is, do you know it? You are the children of a world destroyer named Adam. In Adam's fall, we send all. The question is, have we received the grace that breaks, justly defeats our spirit? 
and sets Christ before our soul as everything. He is so eager to be your all in all. When you are in descent and you fear that you are about to fall into a state of being so displeased with yourself that there is nobody there, it is so deep, that is where you will see Jesus Christ. That is where he will come with a pools full, and oh, an ocean's full of joy and kindness to you because you have finally met him as he truly is, a savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you for revealing again to us the truth of the religious life in Jesus Christ. Father, we do pray that you would do this work. No man can do it. Only your spirit can do it. But we do confess, O Lord, according to your own teaching, that because of our covetousness, we are thieves. Because of our lust, we are adulterers. Because of our anger, we are murderers. We are among the worst men of the Fox Cities, the worst women. And here we have all gathered together. Oh, Lord, you have defeated our wild and proud spirit, and you have broken it. We thank you for such a grace, and that even now you are reviving us, that the only friend of such sinners as us cannot be found among the mortal men. He is the risen Christ who took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul so that he could indeed bear in his flesh and condemn in his flesh that which put us out of reach of your eternal dwelling. We thank you, Lord, for this love. We thank you that even now, as we come to the table, we are being revived in his friendship, in his sweetness, that he delights to be with such lowly folk, people who are struggling with their sins, people whose consciences frequently burn because of their vanity and pride and foolishness. Oh, Lord, we thank you that he is the true friend of a sinner. We thank you for our Savior. In his name, amen.